And we were driving down toward the road going to New Orleans. Yeah. I stopped to get gas, and I went in. My father-in-law gave me the money to go in and pay for the right, gas. Right, right. So I'm in there paying to pay for the gas, and I look over, and I see a 12-inch television set. I've never seen a television set. And Milton Berle was on. Wow. And I looked at that thing, and I said, my God, that's fabulous. And I motioned to all the people come out, my wife to come out of the car to see it. Right. You know? And they kept blowing the horn. Like, come on, we've got to go. You, you know, what are you doing in there? <laughs> What's going on in yeah. there? Yeah. And from right. that time on, the only thing I was interested in was television. Welcome to Country Road Detours, podcasting from the front porch of the South. Visit us at countryrooddetours.com. Hi, this is Bob Longmire. So glad you could join us for episode two. I'm the producer of Country Road Detours, and we have a very special podcast with news journalist Adina Chumley interviewing cable TV pioneer Ross Bagwell Sr. Ms. Chumley co-anchored the WBR-TV Morning News with legendary Carl Williams several years ago in Knoxville, Tennessee. Again, we're so glad that you've chosen to listen to this podcast. Let's go right into the interview. And now, let's listen in. All right, hello, I'm Adina Chumley. I'm a guest host today for Country Road Detours, and our guest today, I'm delighted to say, is Ross Bagwell, television pioneer, or maybe I'd like to say the master of content creation, for sure. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. How about you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty very, good. very good. Um, you know, in my business, a lot of times now, I, I recruit folks, and uh, one of the things we do is, is we'll say, well, tell me a little bit about yourself. But um, I think that might be hard for me to do to you to say, hey, Ross, what's so, your elevator speech now? Because it's a long you story. have a long, <laughs> a long story. Long. I don't know if you could pull it down to 30 seconds. You, you, no, you couldn't. <laughs> It'd be tough to do. You know, I, uh, I have always kind of admired what you, you have done. And actually, just for transparency's sake, I did freelance for Cinetel at one time many years ago uh, when Club Dance was still on. And I didn't get a chance to meet you, but I met your son. Um, but even then, it was like Cinetel was this emerging powerhouse in really in content creation for the cable industry. And um, uh, I took a look at your story, the PBS special that ran um, on our local PBS station. And it struck me how interesting it was. You didn't, it didn't really talk a lot about your parents. And I was curious about your experience growing up in Knoxville, Tennessee, and your parents and what life was like here for you in Knoxville. My parents moved uh, in 1938 to Knoxville. And uh, my dad ended up going to uh, work at KUB. Mm -hmm. His name was Charlie Bagwell. Like to fish, he said to fish. If work interfered with his fishing, he'd quit work. Yeah, he uh, and and my mother worked at J.C. Penney's, and we lived on the UT campus. It's called Lily Avenue. It's right where the uh, swimming facilities are now. That's where my house was. Right, right. And uh, so I spent most of my time carrying papers on the UT campus, or close to the campus, around the campus. You carried the papers. You were like the delivery guy? Oh, I delivered papers from about 9 or 10 years old. Really? So you were delivery pa paper. Did you ride a bicycle through the campus? No, I walked. Walk? 
I won't. Very cool. So did your dad take you fishing? No, he was. He had a bunch of people he fished with, and I had two brothers. I uh, still do. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, one brother's an uh, anarchist engineer. He's retired in Florida, and and another brother who's a lawyer who lives in Gatlinburg. So um, was it was UT was this the university was there? So did you guys interact very much with students, or you were just pretty much doing your own thing? Oh, I'm too, the too busy delivering papers and going to school. And, <laughs> So you and I were talking earlier, too, and I said, I'm amazed by your story because of the women that you've surrounded yourself with in your lifetime. Um, I think I may have a little bit of a girl crush on your wife, Sue, after I watched that piece because she's just amazing. Um, tell me a little <laughs> bit about, I mean, I know you met very young. and and I met her in the seventh grade at Tyson Junior High School, mm-hmm. and we started dating. Mm-hmm. And then that's it. That was it. I dated from the seventh grade till I graduated in 1951. My dad said to me at that time, back in 51, son, this, this Korean War, you, you're going to get called up sure right. as the world. Right. You better join the National Guard and then you won't be, have to worry about it. Go on to college. So I did. And so my senior year of high school, I went to, National Guard meetings once a month. And then uh, on a graduation day, we're all going up to Big Ridge Park to celebrate. Oh, right. Yeah. I called my mother to tell her that I was going to be at Big Ridge Park and I'd be home the next day. And she said, oh, you got a letter from the Air Force. I said, well, open it up. And she opened it up and (laughs) they activated me. Two weeks after I graduated from high school, I was in the Air Force in Biloxi, Mississippi. There you went. At Keesler Air Force Base. Mm-mm-mm. Tell me, let's let's back up to dating in Knoxville in in those years. Where did what, what did you guys do in Knoxville for dating back then? I mean, where'd you go? What'd you guys do? Well, you go you go to the movies, pay twenty five cents and and to get into a movie. Twenty five cents. Twenty five cents. Mm-mm. Nine cents early, and it first started, and then it went to twenty five cents. Yeah. That's insane, right? Yeah, that's insane. But those were the. Those were the days of, uh, of growing up in Knoxville. And that was downtown. That was the only place to go, right? Oh, yeah. Well, the, oh, the Booth Theater where I went is, is right there on the Kingston Pike uh, on the UT campus there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was right there. There was a Booth Theater, and I'd walk over there and go, go to the theater. Go to the movies. They'd go to the movies. It was great. Well, what Saturdays. Did, what did, uh, how did the, uh, the future in-laws think about, about Sue dating Ross, did they like you? Was that a good? Yeah, well, we I, I got along great with my father-in-law was a car dealer, and, and my uh, mother-in-law is just a great lady, and uh, we got along great. She had two sisters, and, and uh, it just uh, you know it's it's been that way now for sixty some odd years. Just a good fit because it's so unusual to have a relationship that started in the seventh grade. And made it all these all the years way through. Later. Yeah, it's incredible, quite frankly, right? Yeah, I'm sure people tell you that all the time. You're listening to Country Road Detours. Sue told me 
I, I, I got shipped off to Biloxi, Mississippi. Right, right. Okay? Mm-hmm. Two months later, she came down to visit with her, her, her mother. My mother brought her down there, too. She said, Mother said that we could get married if you get a three-day pass. So I got a three-day pass on September 20, 23rd, the weekend of September 23rd, and came to Knoxville. Mm-hmm. We had a church wedding at the First Baptist Church here in Knoxville. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the story uh, of my wedding is is something else. I I had to polish shoes and get enough money to go to, uh, to Mobile, Alabama, because that was the closest place I could get it airplane overnight cheap into Knoxville. No kidding. To call it the Nighthawk. And so I polished shoes for everybody in the whole daggone barracks for a couple of weeks. No got, kidding. Yeah, and I got enough money to to get myself to, to Mobile, Alabama into an airplane. The day before my wedding, I was on a bus from Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi, up to Mobile, Alabama. And on the way, a big heavy rain came, and the bus was just crawling along, and I realized I was going to miss that airplane. I'm getting married the next day, three o'clock the next day. So I talking to a guy from the Air Force sitting next to me, I said, I don't have enough money for a cab. And he loaned me $15, and I caught a cab when I got to the airport, uh, to, to Mobile. Went out to the airport, barely made the plane. Oh, my goodness. When I got on the plane about, oh, 30, 40 minutes after I, I was in the air, up comes the stewardess and said, you know, Mr. Bagwell, they're going to let you off in Chattanooga because uh, the weather's getting bad in Knoxville. So I said, how am I going oh to get to Knoxville? So I said, okay. And so then finally I said, could I talk to the pilot? And I took my newspaper announcement up to the pilot and told him, I said, I'm getting married today. I've got to get down. And he said, oh, my goodness. Well, we'll give it a try. So mm-hmm. he turned Chattanooga away. We headed for Knoxville. Stewardess came to me and said, now we're going to Knoxville. I said, day, great. And I had a, the wedding party was going to meet me there at the, at the airport and uh, some of the guys. Anyway, I uh, got right near Knoxville, and the, the stewardess came back and said, it's looking real bad about getting into Knoxville. I said, well, can I talk to the pilot? And I went up and showed him my announcement, and I said, please, I've got to get down. Right. And he said, okay, I'm going to go around one more time. He went around and looked, and then turned and looked at me and said, I'm sorry, son, we can't risk the lives of everybody on this airplane for one passion, you'll have to go on. I said, go on where? He said, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Oh. On my wedding day at 8 o'clock in the morning, at a 3 o'clock wedding, I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Oh. So I called my wife oh, and her husband, her, her, her husband, her dad said, where in the hell are you, boy? Oh. And I said, I'm in Pittsburgh. He said, don't you know you're getting married today? I said, yes, sir. He said, well, how much money have you got? I said, nine cents. Oh, my word. And so he's, uh, anyway, I told the, 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 uh, airline guy, I said, you know, I've got to get to Knoxville. He said, don't worry about it. We'll put you up here. Won't cost you a dime for food and lodging. I said, no, no, I've got to get to Knoxville, Tennessee. He said, closest you can get to Knoxville will be Johnson City, Tennessee. If you're on that little mail plane out there, a little T11. 
I said, could you get me on that? He said, I'll try. And he did. He took me out in the mail truck, and I climbed on these mailbags, and I unloaded mail all day long till I got to Johnson City. I called in, in Wheeling, West Virginia. I called my wife and told her I was going to be landing in about 1 o'clock in uh, Johnson City, Tennessee. And her father said, I'll get a county policeman to pick you up uh, when you land. And he did. They pulled a police car up and put me in it, and bang. I got to Knoxville just in time to kind of wa- wipe my face off real good and to comb my hair and put on a clean shirt and uh, uniform. Heard the people sigh as I went, went into the church, and uh, we got married. And I was AWOL, and I knew it because I was supposed to be back. Right. And, uh, but when I did get back, with, I brought my wife with me to Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi. I went to my first sergeant. I said, "Well, I'm, I'm guilty." And he said, "Don't worry. We we count. We knew you'd get married, so we counted you here. So <laughs> we gave you a bit of a pass. It gave me a bit of a pass. <laughs> what a story! That's insane. Did you feel like at that moment you're like, "Oh my word, is this ever going to happen?" <laughs> well, we've been married 68 years now. It's incredible, right? Yeah. This is the city, Radio City, New York. All the big television shows come from here. This is the nerve center of television. The Milton Berle show comes from here. He's got a lot of nerve. So tell me about your early career in television and um, to my point about even even in your in the case of the wedding, it's like it's like you seem to just you just seem to it, it works. It may be a difficult road to get there, but it works, right? And for you, even in early television, you just you just maximize the opportunities well, when you saw I had them. not seen, my father-in-law and mother-in-law came down to to take Sue and I down to New Orleans for the weekend. Oh, I love that. And we were driving down toward the road going to New Orleans, yeah. stopped to get gas, and I went in, my father-in-law gave me the money to go in and pay for the right, gas. Right, right, So I'm in there paying to pay for the gas, and I look over and I see a 12-inch television set. I've never seen a television set. And Milton Burrow was on. Wow. And I looked at that thing and I said, my God, that's fabulous. And I motioned to all the people to come out, my wife to come out of the car to see it. Right. You know. And they kept blowing the horn. Like, come on, we've got to go. You, you know, what are you doing in there? <laughs> What's going on in yeah. there? And from right. that time on, the only thing I was interested in was television. I got out of the Air Force in 1952, 53. Okay. I'm in the Air Force in 1953. A friend of mine got me a job working nights in a lab in Oak Ridge, and I went to school. Okay. Oh. Then I went to school at UT from about 8 to 3 every day. Mm-hmm. And then I'd get home, take a little nap, and then go back to work 11 to 7. What so, were you studying at UT at that time? I was studying, uh, trying to get in. I had radio classes. I right. had everything. But uh, UT didn't have a, all they had was a wire recorder. They didn't have anything like a television. I was looking right. for the television. When did you finally buy your own television? When I was in the Air Force, I, I got me a TV. Uh, after I, I'd seen the one down there, 
they they trans transferred me to to Cape Cod and the Keesler Air Force Base, and I went to Boston because it's just wow, up the yeah. road, uh -huh. and uh, I saw a used TV in the window, and I bought this used TV, and uh, soon I had a little television set. What were your favorite things to watch back then? Oh, I'd watch anything. It was just television was so amazing at that time. So new and so yeah, there weren't a lot of stations. It's just a such a new thing, you know. Right, right. So I really enjoyed it. I was hooked on it, and that's what I wanted to do. I did. And uh, so when I got out of the Air Force, as I said, I got this job as a lab. We started UT. UT didn't have anything but a wire recorder. Right, right. So I started looking around. Where can I find out about television? And NYU was one of the very few schools. That, right, that, that makes sense. Yeah, in mm -hmm. New York. Mm -hmm. And so I uh, contacted them, got the information, got everything together, and went to my wife. And I said, would, would you move in with my mother and dad while I go to New York and get into school? And she said, where are you going to make a living? we got to eat. And all right. I said, well, I'll get a job. I'll get a job. So anyway, I uh, called an airplane to, to New York and stayed at the YMCA. So anyway, I was having coffee the next day or two and uh, in a little coffee shop near school there. Okay. And a guy said to me, next sitting next to me, he said, where in the hell are you from, boy? And I said, <laughs> Knoxville, Tennessee. And he started talking to me. And he said, I said, well, he said where, where are you? I told him I was going to school. He said, yeah. he was too. His name is John Gilroy. He later produced Dick Cabot for ABC. And uh, so we... <laughs> He said, we need another roommate in our in our apartment building. Why don't you come join us? And so I, I moved in with the two other guys, uh, three other guys, and uh, had a cot and, and uh, paid, uh, I don't know, I paid $125 a month. But uh, that took care of my part of it. Right. About a year later, I got a, I got a job at NBC, and I got a better job going right. to school. And uh, so I brought brought my wife up, and she moved to Long Island, and I I go to school and and stay out, stay till about midnight, and get, get Just home. Just working. Mm. Mm -hmm. And you would go to school during the day too. Go to school, go to school during the day, and work the afternoon and at night, then get home. Um, so you ended up getting a, a production assistant job at uh, NBC. Well, as a page, I was working howdy duty, mm -hmm. you know, bringing the kids in. I took care of the little peanut gallery because you had the, without the peanut guy, you couldn't have right, a show. Right, right, right. And uh, we had an equipment failure. A tape machine in those days. Oh yeah. Was as big as a dump truck. It was huge. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I saw him tape the first show, and I said it'll never. It'll be, I said we're years away. And two months later, they were broadcasting with. With tape, but these these kids needed to be taken care of. So I started playing games with them until they got the equipment fixed. Right. The next day, I got a note from Roger Muir, who was a producer of Howdy Doody. Mm -hmm. Said, "Young man, I want to thank you for what you did for us yesterday. If there's ever anything I can do for you, I'm in room 906." Well, I just stopped everything and took off up to 906, and I had the load from him. And I asked his administrative assistant. Could I see him? And she said, I said, about this note. And she said, Roger, that young man that helped us yesterday is out here. 
And he said, come on back. So I went back, and he said, what can I do for you? I said, did you mean what you said? He said, what did I say? You said, if I can do anything for you. And he said, yeah, I can. What do you want? I said, I want to get into television. He said, young man, you're in television. So he hired me as a production assistant. Do you remember what you made back then? I think it was $45 a week. Wow. So I, I kept moving up. Right. But you saw that opportunity. I mean, you maximized a note. Yeah. You know what I, I mean? I must have worked, like every, with it. worked every game show NBC I had. It's incredible. Yeah. Why did you decide to move back to Knoxville and come back? NBC, this is years later. I was yeah, with yeah, NBC sure. eight years. But they sent me to do a show in Canada called Kin to Win. A Kin to Win, yeah. Uh-huh. I'm I'm living in Canada and Toronto and Montreal, and my wife's living on Long Island. Oh, and she oh, said, yeah. Ross, you either tell NBC you want to come back to New York, right? Or I'm Absolutely. going to Knoxville, Tennessee. The kids can't. <laughs> the kids right. and I are not going to do this. And uh, so I went to NBC and asked them. I said. Could you get me back to New York? And they said, not now, Ross. You got the show going good. I said, well, anyway, I ended up quitting NBC and coming home to Knoxville. Mm-hmm. And uh, a good friend of mine was a general manager at WATE, Ty McLeod. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, I called him and he said, when you come home, you got a job. So I, I, for two or three months, I got a job at uh, WATE. Right. And then uh, I got a call one day from Art Lavage. Right. And he said, I saw your commercial on... Uh, so you were on, in the production staff, like doing the commercial production? No, I, would, no I did my own commercials uh-huh. for my clients. Oh, yeah. Right. And I produced this this uh, content called gotcha. the White Glove Inspection. I went to the Knoxville Glove Company, which we used to have a glove company here. Okay. And I bought dozens of white lab gloves you slide on mm-hmm. your hands and then I had give you come on in and give your car a white glove inspection because uh-huh. they're the cleanest neatest cars you'll ever buy used cars uh. anyway he saw this stuff that I was doing for him and asked me if I'd be interested in coming in the agency business with him uh, with him it's a big yeah, agent yeah, he's one that. of the biggest uh-huh. in the southeast and uh so I ended up leaving WATE and going to work uh, as an account executive for Lavage. And a few years later, I became president of Lavage. A few years later, I asked Lavage to start spending more time in television. Right. Because cable television was coming it's on. emerging, yeah. Yeah, I said, now's the time for us to blossom out into cable production. He said, no, we're going to stay in the research. And I said, I'm not into research. So as president, I resigned. And started my own company. Gotcha. With, I think, I had an administrative assistant and an art director. That's what I started with. This guy asked me to uh, create some commercials for Roby's restaurants in okay. Memphis. Okay. Roast beef place. And so I, I went down there with a, a guy that was working for me here part time. And we got some old runway lights and we lit it. It was runway lights at night and gave the restaurant a real... Yeah. Anyway, about a week later after it started airing, I get a call from a guy at uh, Marriott Corporation. He said, oh, we saw your commercials. We're getting ready to buy them and change their name. 
And would you be interested in working with us? And I said, yeah. So he invited me to Washington, D.C., and I ended up handling, I grew and and handled a lot of the marketing for the Marriott Corporation and all their commercials for years. That's great. In Washington, yeah. That was a good good client to land. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right? For for a little outfit out of Knoxville, right? That's right. And I kept growing and growing and growing. And uh, then I discarded the agency business and just stayed with production. And then along comes the national network. Right. And uh, I used to go over and do my editing for commercials over in Nashville because they had a, a kind of a beginning computerized system. And it was cheaper to edit at right. night. Right. And uh, the engineer that I worked with became president of the, of the network. And we'd go to lunch together. And he said, he called me in and he said, I'm getting ready to be head of a network and I uh, need yeah. need a sitcom. Can you do that for me? I said, sure. So I did a thing called I-40 Paradise. Right. Did 113 and a half hours. And that sort of launched you, didn't yeah, it? Into, yeah. Yeah. It kept doing more, more and more and more and more and more. Yeah. Right. At some point, you guys grew enough that you grew out of your space. You built a, a really nice facility in West Knoxville. Well, I was shooting in a warehouse off of a, a, a busy road called Middlebrook Pike. Oh, yes. And uh, so I, we'd have to, and a train would come by, and we'd have to stop production until yep. the train passed. You know? right. So it was just getting a little bit too much. So I said, I want to build me. So I, I went to to a banker and what have you, and I got enough money to buy a piece of property. I had I'd made a lot of money at that time, too. My father-in-law said, why don't you look down to Rachel Sherrill's place? That's a good farm down there. It would be big enough. To... So I went down and talked to Miss Sherrill, and she said, well, there's a farm down there. And I said, right, right. They tell me I could get $45,000 an acre. And I said, well, I can't pay that kind of money. And I said, uh, who owns that farm down there, uh, the part of the farm down there with the uh, barn and everything? And she said, oh, my, my daughter Rachel owns that. And I said, where is she? She's, she was a professional pool player in, uh, of all in, things. in Florida. Of all things. And I called her, and she said, Mother said I'd get $45,000 an acre. I said, not for me. I don't have that kind of money. I said, if you change your mind, call me. Right. About two weeks she called me. She said, well, I have to come to Knoxville. And I said, no, you won't. And uh, so I ended up buying 11 and a half acres with a three-acre lake there, which was formed by an earthquake. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. And uh, I tried to get the state to let me cover it up, use the land, but mm-hmm. uh, they wouldn't let me do it because of the earthquake. Uh, and so that's how that studio, I had to have my own studio and own staff, and I ended up with 158 employees. Hey listeners, i got to tell you about this coffee that I'm drinking right now. It has a very smooth taste and I love it. And it's produced right here in Knoxville, Tennessee. 100% whole bean Arabica coffee. You can order through their website, KnoxvilleCoffeeCO.com. Mention Country Road Detours and get 10% off your very first single order. And now, back to the interview. Show, 
Starring Roy Rogers, King of the Cowboys, Trigger, his golden palomino, and Dale Evans, Queen of the West. about all the people you've run into in your life. You've really brushed elbows with um, some folks from the golden age of Hollywood, if you will. Um, I know you knew very well Roy Rogers, who was you know, a television star with his Western. And, um, but there's a couple others, too, I want to ask you about. But you and Roy were, were friends. Yes. Uh, when I was doing a howdy, one day Gabby Hayes filled in for Buffalo Bob. And Gabby said, young man, would you go downstairs and bring Roy Rogers up to the studio? And he said, he'll be the only one in the lobby with a cowboy hat on. <laughs> True. And I didn't know him. <laughs> so I went downstairs, introduced myself, and brought Roy up to the studio. Yeah. Then later on, and while I was doing marketing for the Merritt Corporation, they were going to change the name to one of the roast beef restaurants. And he, the, the, the vice president said, the guy in California said we should get somebody like Roy Rogers to give it a cowboy theme. Right. And he says, anybody here know Roy Rogers? And I said, well, I've met him. And I had. <laughs> and they said, well, you, you go to California and you cut a deal with him. And we named him Roy Rogers Restaurants. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and that, that was you. That's the way it happened, yeah. But you became friendly uh, with each I other. I became a real good friend of Roy's. And Roy and I became very close. And uh, traveled for 32, 33 years with it. We went everywhere and did everything together. That's pretty amazing. And, oh, yeah. To my yeah. point for a little old guy from Knoxville, Tennessee, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's amazing. Well, I still have his hat here in my office that he gave me. I was doing a personal appearance with him in Washington, D.C., and we had a knock at the door in the suite we were in. Right. I went to the door, and a guy flashed his billfold and said, FBI, we want to see Roy Rogers. I said, Roy, the FBI is out here. And he said, come on in, boys. So they went in. He said, what are we going to do for you? He said, well, we just got word that there's going to be an attempt on your life. It's personal appearance you're going to do today. And he paused for a minute, and he looked at me, and he said, Ross, what size hat do you wear? I said, I am not going to put on any cowboy hat. <laughs> and so uh, they did find a man with yeah. a gun. Yeah. That, that's the thing. So I came home, and about a week later, I got a box in the mail, and he sent me his personal hat, which I still have in the office. It's like, thanks, Roy. I'm not wearing your hat going out if there's got No thanks. No way I'm going to wear that guy. No thanks. Um, you also met Colonel Parker, which most people might remember was the manager for Elvis, right? Did you meet Colonel Parker? Yes. I didn't think a whole lot of Colonel Parker. I, I got a call. A guy had, that I knew when I was in New York, and he mm -hmm. said, Ross, I, I really need your help. He said, Elvis died last night. Okay. And I said, I didn't know that. He said, well, it's not out yet, but he died. And he said, I need you to take a crew, go to Memphis, and interview his father so that we can put it at the end of these shows we just finished with Elvis, this show special we right, just right. finished with him. Because we can't run the show without acknowledging the fact that Elvis died and his father, thank you for your condolences. You know, right? right. 
And then I said, okay, when do you want me to go? He said, right now. So I put my crew together in a truck, and we went to Memphis. So the day after Elvis died in the afternoon, there we are at, at Gracelet. And Colonel Parker met us. And uh, Vernon, his father. Mm-hmm. And we gathered up old fan mail that Elvis had received, stacked it up around Vernon so it looked like condolences. We're coming in. Coming yeah. in, yeah. Yeah. yeah cause, and so that we could air that, get it edited onto this special. And I go in the kitchen to take an electrician in to show him where we could tie into some power for lights. And there was a half glass of milk and a and a half of uh, well, it had eaten uh, peanut butter and peanut butter and banana sandwich that had turned black. And oh. I figured that must have been Elvis's last meal. Right, his sandwich was still sitting there. Yeah, yeah. wow. It was, uh, and uh, I made a lot of pictures, but uh, Vernon uh, took my camera away from me. He, he okay. said, "Let me." He said, "Let me borrow your camera a minute," and he wouldn't give it back to me. Oh my, and that's I interesting. A, I, yeah, I had all the pictures. I'd made pictures all over the place. Uh, yeah, whoa, that yeah, that's interesting. Was, uh, so, what about Walt Disney? You met Walt Disney one time. Well, a guy invited me to lunch one time, and I I was I had an office in Burbank. No but, kidding. Yeah, they had a new thing called computerized editing. Right. It was really good. So I would go out to my office in California and do all my editing. And uh, this friend of mine invited me to lunch. We started driving down toward Anaheim, and he said, did you ever eat at Anaheim? I said, no. Did you ever eat Disneyland? I said, no. So he got, we went up on the seventh floor of this building, a private elevator, and sat there. And I said, what's the big deal about this? He said, you'll see. And a few minutes later, up comes Walt and introduced himself and had lunch with us. Well, how was that? What do you remember? Real nice. It was interesting. He was more interested in what I did rather than me ask questions for him. You know. Right, right. Pretty yeah, fascinating. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, uh, one thing about the production business, some people will change your mind and some people won't. I mean, the worst person I ever met was Lucia Ball. I won't tell you why, but she's was not the type of person that, that I expect her to be uh, with her language and whatever. Right, right, right. And then uh, Frank Sinatra I was surprised with. I was doing a, a segment in a casino in Las Vegas, and there was a woman leaning up against a slot machine watching her husband play a slot machine. And this director of operations was showing me where I could shoot. right. And up, he said, don't look down, but here comes Frank. And Frank Sinatra started walking up the way. And Frank stopped and turned to the woman and said, why aren't you playing, honey? And she said, oh, Mr. Sinatra, we don't have enough money for both of us to play. And he reached in his pocket to a big wad of bills and flipped off about $1,000 to her and said, now you do, and walked away. And it changed my whole opinion of Sinatra. Wow. Yeah, it's a... And talk about just being there at that time for that to happen. Has anyone ever, have you ever been starstruck? When you met somebody, you were like, wow. Well, I mean, I've I've seen a lot of beautiful women. (laughs) Took Liz Taylor's coat off one night, and she smelled good and she looked good. And you were like, wow. Wow, yeah. After a while, you got used to 
most of the people that you thought were good were not. The people you thought were bad were good. <laughs> it's kind of strange. Uh, kind of funny the way that happens. Oh yeah. Huh? I mean, sure. I, I was having lunch uh, with a friend of mine. We we'd go to the Dean Martin rehearsals because they were funnier than the show. Oh, I bet. There at yeah. NBC, and he we stopped for lunch and went across the street to lunch, and we were sitting there getting ready to sit down. And this guy, this guy I was with, uh, motioned to these three girls that just walked in, come on and join us. And so they came and they joined us. And I said, well, what do you all do? She said, well, we're a singing group on the Dean Martin show. I said, really? I said, what do you call yourself? She said, we call ourselves uh, Diana Ross and the Supremes. Stop I it. I said, that's a catchy name. Stop said, it. And he started kicking me because I never heard of it. Oh, gosh. Oh, uh, my gosh. And you're like, you're just kind of... Oblivion, right? It's right. like oblivious to it. And what? then after lunch, they left and said goodbye and all that. And uh, and he turned to me and says, you never did realize, did you? I oh, said, to realize what? Word. He said, they were trying to pick us up. I said, <laughs> you're kidding me. He said, yes. I said, well, I didn't know it. Oh, my God. Diana Ross in the surprise. Yeah. Some of them surprised you and some of them didn't. You know, you really had uh, some foresight into uh, being able to see that Cable was going to grow, and in fact, it exploded, as we well know. And you really had an opportunity to maximize your business in that space. You know, when you look at the shift, the paradigm shift, if you will, that's going on today, you have companies such as Hulu and Netflix that are creating content of their own to be on their Internet streaming services. What's your read of all of that? There are those companies now. I mean, it's, it's, it's changing again. And a lot of people don't even have cable anymore. They're just streaming through the Internet, their television. Um, what's your read on it? How do you feel about it? Well, I think computers are going to change the whole industry anyway, and uh, it's not going to be like it used to be. Uh, I think it's going to be very difficult for young people to to start their own business and create television shows because the companies are just hiring people and they're just creating shows. It, uh, I think the quality of our programming has gone down because of that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know uh, where it's going to end. Right. I know there's a lot of mergers, a lot of sales. Uh, it's not The industry is not what it was when I started, where you had an opportunity there's not a whole lot of opportunity other than get go to work for one of these firms, which they're just jobbing things out now. And you don't know whether you're going to have a job a month from now, you know. Right. It's just not a place to grow anymore. And uh, I hope that it cha changes and goes back to what it was, uh, where you get more creativity. Well, there's got to be some Ross Bagwells out there or Rita Bagwells that are still looking for how do I get in. That's right, Rita. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, if you if you had advice for young people today, what would you what would you say to them about getting into production? And I want and I, I almost hesitate to say television production because it's just production. It's television, film, internet. It's everything now. Yeah, it's all changing. I think it's going to be more and more internet stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, I don't think it'll ever be what it was for for people to work in uh, as a as a creator. Mm -hmm. uh, Just uh, it takes a lot of tenacity. 
Those, yeah. those, those are things that, you know, you had that job as a kid. You just have always plugged away at what's next, right? What, is, what are you up to now? You're sort of semi-retired or? Well, no, I'm no. kind of fading to black now. Uh, trying to, uh, trying to, uh, to enjoy the last few years. And, uh, I still like to create things and pass them on mm-hmm. to, to my daughter's firm and, and her partner. And you, do you mentor other people too? Like, do they come to you with ideas and say, Ross, so we're well, thinking about you, this? I would, and- we give them what I would do. They do what they want to. Yeah, mm-hmm. What does a typical day look like for you? You're not going to go fishing. That's for no, sure. No, I'm not going to go fishing. We, uh, uh, Carmita and I just, uh, stay in here and do our projects. I still mm-hmm. work on little projects and anything we can talk about. Uh, <laughs> or is it still in the, oh, well, uh, development every, stage? Every, every day there's another project, you know, it's, uh, I mean, I wanted to build a waterfall in Knoxville, Tennessee, but they call it Knox Falls. And the reason I'd want to do that is you draw all the people from up at the Gatlinburg area. If they're on Pigeon their way Forge, there, they'll stop here. Bring them down here to see the <laughs> falls, which right. has music and lights. You ever see them in Vegas, these these waterfalls? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, they the dancing waterfalls. Yeah. Yes, I want to yes, build yes. one between the two bridges uptown so that you you come here to see the... Knox Falls. Cool. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, but you know, you got to have an imagination. Well, I know who did have an imagination, and look at what you built with it. It's really, really incredible. It's been a great trip, and I'd do it all over again. I was going to say, you had a good ride, Ross Bagwell. You've Thank had a you. really amazing ride. Um, and it is my pleasure to get to spend a little bit of time with you this morning. I've enjoyed it. It is absolutely a pleasure. And finally get to meet you after all these years. Well, yeah, you come I've back. I've been yeah. in Knoxville a while too. So anyway, I absolutely enjoy that. Thank you and, so much. Uh, thanks for this time this morning. This is awesome. Fascinating guy. Andrew. All right. So we're going to wrap it up now. This is Country Road Detours. I'm Adina Chumley and with Ross Bagwell. And we'll send you guys on your day. We'll send it back to Bob Longmire. We want to thank Adina and Ross Bagwell Sr. for taking the time out of their busy schedule to having this great conversation. Coming up October 1st is Bradley Reeves, archivist at Appalachian Media Archives, who will share some very rare audio clips for the first time on Episode 3. You won't want to miss that. Former WBIR news journalists Bill Williams and Ken Swall will be joining us in November. If you have a question you'd like to ask, email them to countryrodetours at gmail.com. If we use them, we'll send you a very special collectible gift. Until next time, buy a stranger a cup of coffee and have a great conversation. Thanks for stopping by Country Road Detours.